Hi there. This is Julia, and murder is bad. This is part two of the story of Greg Dotson's murder by his brother in law and nephew in law and the ensuing trial. If you haven't heard part one, you can stop right here and catch up or not. Do whatever you want. I'm not your keeper. When we left off, Greg's 23-year-old nephew-in-law was being brought to trial four years after the murder. It wasn't until January of 2000 that Tidwell's trial was to take place. But days before, one of his attorneys, one of the Larrys, gets into a terrible car accident. Larry Wallace misses a stop sign and hits a guardrail, flipping his Toyota 4Runner into a pond. Two passersby actually dive in, cut his seatbelt, and bring him to dry ground. These passersby leave as soon as police arrive without even giving their names, just anonymous Good Samaritans, or like serial killers or something. But it was also like 15 degrees, so maybe they were just really cold. Anyways, Larry Wallace makes a full recovery, but it takes until April for Dondi Tidwell to go to trial. On April 10th, the trial begins and Tidwell pleads not guilty. His defense is that he wasn't involved in the actual killing. Defense attorney Larry Warner says Tidwell was guilty of assaulting and binding Greg, but not murdering or conspiring to murder. ADA Paul Newman, not related to the actor Paul Newman, says in his opening statement that Tidwell had previously threatened Greg and that he didn't like that Greg was black and Joy was white. Quote, Dondi Tidwell was a prejudiced young man. He goes on to say that according to Tidwell's statement to Rutherford County Police, Greg's children were present when he was beaten, tortured, begging for his life, and then ambushed in a secluded area. He also throws in that Tidwell and his girlfriend went on a picnic at Oakland's mansion the day after, just to show like how cold-hearted he was, or it could be that he was literally trying to pretend like nothing had happened. Greg's mother, Mary Reese, testifies that she talked to Greg the morning he was murdered when he left to return to Murfreesboro. She didn't hear of his death until Joy called the following day. She also says that when Joy and Greg first married, she actually took Joy and Christopher Stacy, the man who's already pled guilty to murdering Greg, her son, she took them both into her home in Baltimore, Tennessee, and treated them like her own children. The next day of the trial, Joy Dotson testifies, breaking down in tears several times, she tells the jury that her nephew didn't get along with her husband because her husband was black. She says Tidwell was prejudiced and made racial slurs toward Greg and threatened him a week before the murder when Joy and Greg were in an argument over the phone. Greg had called her a name. Tidwell took the phone and said to him, Wait till you get back to Tennessee. I'll take care of you then general menacing comment. Next, the Dotson's neighbor, Vivian Knox, 
testifies how she heard arguing between 9.30 and 10 p.m., so loud that it knocked things off her walls. She saw Greg and Stacy come out five to ten minutes later with a towel wrapped around Greg's hands. I suppose this was to cover up how he had been bound. She heard Greg ask to be taken to the hospital, Stacy replying he was taking him to the hospital to get his arm treated, and then watched them get in the car. She later saw Stacy return without Greg and Tidwell pull up in another vehicle with Greg's three-year-old daughter. She never saw Tidwell near Greg, though. Then a man named E.F. Hoover testifies about him and his brother Jerry coon hunting that night around 10.15 p.m. near his home when they heard a commotion near the creek and there was loud music when they were just sitting on the tailgate of a pickup truck. Quote, all of a sudden, you know, we heard a shotgun blast. A few seconds later, all the noise had died down. The day finishes with the testimonies of Jimmy Prater, the man who Stacy had approached to sell Greg's car to, Lieutenant Gage, and an agent from the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, or Tibby, Agent Tommy Heflin, testifies about the ballistics of the shotgun. The next day begins with Chris Stacy testifying. Stacy is now saying that Tidwell only hit Greg a couple times, but did not bind, kidnap, or help kill him. He also says Tidwell flashed his lights when Stacy turned away from the hospital and towards Gucci Ford Road. He even claims that Tidwell said that Stacy didn't have to shoot Greg. Stacy actually breaks down on the stand as well as Tidwell on the defense bench. Mary Reese, however, showed no emotion as she stared Stacy down while he described murdering her son. When Stacy is asked why his story changed, he says, I told them what they wanted to hear. Dondi didn't have nothing to do with it. He says he knows he can get charged with perjury, but that he can take it. When D.A. Whitesell cross-examines Stacy, he goes through all the inconsistencies from his multiple statements. He also presents Tidwell's two-hour videotaped confession into evidence before calling a former cellmate to the stand. Stephen Mitchell Regan testifies how Tidwell told him that the murder was about money and that he planned on beating Greg up and shooting him in the head. The day finishes with assistant M.E. Dr. Harlan describing Greg's injuries, the ligature marks on his wrists, the extensive skull fractures with the left side of his face being caved in, and a shotgun wound in the back of the head. Stacy is called back to testify at the start of the next day. He's asked why he implicated Tidwell at all. He says officers told him that Tidwell was blaming him. You know, like, oh, Tidwell's in there singing like a canary. And he said, I'm going to put it on him. Since he snitched on me, I'd do it to him. Quote, he's going down with me. Stacy repeats that Greg threatened to beat up everyone. And when asked if Tidwell used the N-word to describe Greg, Stacy replies, I don't know. But that many of their family members didn't like Greg. He also says there's a difference between a black man and an 
N-word. D.A. Whitesell asks, Why did you kill Gregory Dotson? Stacy answers, I don't honestly know. Ugh. When Whitesell concludes his arguments, he says, We all know hate can supply a motive for murder, and that Tidwell supplied the gun, shells, baseball bat, and concrete trowel to beat Greg. Quote, don't let him pull the wool over your eyes. Just before 7 p.m., the jury is sent to deliberation. As time passes, Mary Reese actually ends up buying pizza not only for her family, but for the Tidwells as well. After five hours, the jury returns with a verdict. At 11.45 p.m., Dondi Eugene Tidwell is found guilty of first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder, kidnapping, and car theft. During the penalty phase, more evidence is presented as well as impact statements. A photograph of Greg's face after he had been murdered is shown to the jury, which seems to be very disturbing to several jurors. Joy Dotson states that Greg was a good father and provider for their children. She says she lost her husband, her brother, and her nephew that night. She also reveals that her daughter, who's now in elementary school, but at the time of the murder was three, told her about the, quote, loud boom she heard that night and about her father's beating. Her daughter was also made to clean up her father's blood at the apartment. Joy tells the jury that her daughter is in counseling after having recurring nightmares and to help her handle her memory of her father's death. Greg's mother, Mary Reese, also submits an impact statement. Quote, My family and I have suffered a loss I cannot explain to you in words. This tested my faith in God and not feeling sure of myself as a Christian. She talks about how after her son's death, she couldn't function as a store manager and had to resign. She's lost her car, her son's car, her house, but has learned that material things don't matter as much. She says she regrets not taking the time from work to kiss her son goodbye on that day and is now afraid not to kiss her husband and daughter goodbye when she sees them. Through tears, she says, these things are more important. Jurors and other family members also cry while Mary speaks. The only person to share an impact statement for Tidwell is family friend Delray Helmick. She says Tidwell's life changed when his mom died a few months before the murder and that they were very, very close. His mother, Joy's sister, and Greg's sister-in-law, Wanda Tidwell, did die on December 23, 1995, of heart failure at the age of 38. Delray says... He tried his hardest to keep his family together. Dondi was a loving, giving child. She also adds that he wasn't aggressive or violent, which is hard to hear when he's on trial for literally beating a man. 
ADA Tom Jackson describes Greg's last moments of pleading for his life before the shotgun came out with a, quote, blast that sent this man to eternity. Defense attorney Larry Wallace asked jurors to consider Tidwell's young age, saying, I'm here to beg you to do the right thing. The thing is, Dondi Tidwell is already older than Greg was when he was murdered. So it's hard to consider age when it's a case like this. There's an hour deliberation before the jury returns and gives Dondi Tidwell a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Mary Reese comforts Joy when the sentencing is announced. A couple months later, Tidwell is called back to court for a continuation of his sentencing. I've never heard something like this, but on top of Tidwell's life sentence, Judge Clayton sentences him to 23 years for especially aggravated kidnapping, 23 years for conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and four and a half years for car theft. He is classified as a dangerous offender, which Judge Clayton adds 23 years to be served consecutively with his other sentences. Tidwell's defense motions for a retrial, which will be heard in the following September. When the defense returned, they presented 12 grounds on which to base Tidwell's appeal. Some of these were not being allowed to dismiss a juror, Tibby Agent Heflin testifying outside the scope of his expertise, Greg having trace amount of cocaine in his system not being allowed in at trial, the photograph of Greg's body inflaming the jury during sentencing, Joy being allowed to testify on her daughter's behalf, and that there wasn't enough evidence to prove first-degree murder. Judge Clayton denies a retrial. In the case of the juror, the defense argued that because he worked in human resources, he would become a leader and impress upon the other jury members too much. And the defense attorneys said that their kind of jury experts said, we don't want any leaders. Uh, the prosecution objected though, because this man was one of only two black jury members and they accused the defense of wanting him off the jury based on race, which obviously isn't allowed. Assistant Emmy Dr. Harlan also ruled that the trace amount of cocaine found in Greg's system would not affect his actions, reactions, emotions, or manner of death. And the photograph and Joy's testimony are allowed during the sentencing phase only. They weren't used to convict him or anything. So that's allowed. Two years later, however, Tidwell's defense puts up basically the same grounds for another appeal to the Court of Criminal Appeals, or CACA. But this time, the argument about the black juror wins Tidwell another trial. Judge Jerry L. Smith states that unless an attorney flat out says they want a jury member to be dismissed on the basis of race, a jury member is allowed to be dismissed. You can't read minds. 
So there's no way for the prosecution to know exactly what the defense is thinking. They have to take them at their word, basically. They can object. The objection can be entered, et cetera, et cetera. The defense argued that it's not because he's black, but because he would, quote, unduly influence his fellow jurors and become a leader on the jury. And that same juror did actually become the jury foreman. Now, Tidwell's defense has to prepare for a brand new trial. But a couple years after this, I don't know why it took so long, you know, appeals or other motions. But on November 10th, 2004, Tidwell ends up pleading guilty for a reduced sentence. All of his charges are basically condensed into just serving 60 years. He will become eligible for parole in 2030 at the age of 54. If he doesn't get parole, he will be released in 2044 at the age of 68. Greg Dotson would be 49 today. And while he's not this, quote, perfect victim, and this story is not exactly narratively satisfying, I think it's important to highlight cases that are basically just regular. The media has this thing where they call victims innocent victims, which generally speaking means like white and affluent. And if you're not an innocent victim, then they just smear you, essentially. But Greg had a family, was loved. Even the wife that he was having problems with called him a good father and a good provider. I just think it's important to recognize that. So thank you for listening to Murder is Bad. If you're interested in pictures from this case, you can check that out on Instagram at Murder is Bad Podcast. Thanks again for listening and supporting. Over a thousand followers on Instagram is very exciting to me. So take care of each other. And remember, murder is bad.